Section 5 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 9. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amy Koenig. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 9. Section 5. Selected Poems by Thomas Chatterton. Thomas Chatterton, 1752 to 1770. To the third quarter of the eighteenth century belongs the tragedy of the life of Thomas Chatterton, who, misunderstood and neglected during his brief seventeen years of poetic reverie, has by the force of his genius and by his actual achievement compelled the nineteenth century, through one of its best critics, to acknowledge him as the father of the new romantic school, and to accord him thereby a place unique among his contemporaries. His family and early surroundings serve in a way to explain his development. He was born at Bristol, a town rich in the traditions and monuments of bygone times. For nearly two hundred years the office of sexton to the church of St. Mary Redcliffe had been handed down in the family. At the time of the poet's birth it was held by a maternal uncle, for his father, a musical genius, somewhat of a poet, an antiquarian dabbler in occult arts, was the first to aspire to a position above the hereditary one, and had taken charge of the pile free schools in Bristol. He died before his son's birth, and left his widow to support her two children by keeping a little school and by needlework. The boy, reserved and given to reverie from his earliest years, was at first considered dull, but finally learned to spell by means of the illuminated capitals of an old musical folio and a black-letter Bible. He spent much of his time with his uncle, in and about the church. St. Mary Redcliffe, one of the finest specimens of medieval church architecture in England, is especially rich in altar-tombs with recumbent carved figures of knights and ecclesiastic and civic dignitaries of bygone days. These became the boy's familiar associates, and he amused himself on his lonely visits by spelling out the old inscriptions on their monuments. There he got hold of some quaint oaken chests in the muniment room over the porch, filled with parchments old as the Wars of the Roses, and these deeds and charters of the Henrys and Edwards became his primers. In 1760 he entered Colston's Blue Coat Charity School, located in a fine old building of the Tudor times. The rules of the institution provided for the training of its inmates in the principles of the Christian religion as laid down in the church catechism, and in fitting them to be apprenticed in due course to some trade. During the six years of his stay, Chatterton received only the rudiments of a common school education, and found little to nourish his genius. But being a voracious reader, he went on his small allowance through three circulating libraries— and became acquainted with the older English poets, and also read history and antiquities. He very early entertained dreams of ambition, without, however, finding any sympathy. So he lived in a world of his own, conceiving before the age of twelve the romance of Thomas Rowley, an imaginary clerk of the fifteenth century, and his patron, Master William Caning, a former mayor of Bristol whose effigy was familiar to him from the tomb in the church. This fiction, which after his death gave rise to the celebrated controversy of the Rowley poems, matured at this early age as a boy's life-dream, he fashioned into a consistent romance, and wove into it among the prose fragments, 
the ballads and lyrics on which his famous poet now rests. His earliest literary forgery was a practical joke played on a credulous pewterer at Bristol, for whom he fabricated a pedigree dating back to the time of the Norman conquest, which he professed to have collected from ancient manuscripts. It is remarkable as the work of a boy not yet fourteen. He was rewarded with a crown piece, and the success of this hoax encouraged him further to play upon the credulity of his townspeople, and to continue writing prose and verse in pseudo-antique style. In 1767 he was bound apprentice to John Lambert, attorney. The office duties were light. He spent his spare time in poetizing, and sent anonymously transcripts from professedly old poems to the local papers. Their authorship being traced to him, he now claimed that his father had found numerous old poems and other manuscripts in a coffer of the muniment room at Redcliffe, and that he had transcribed them. Under guise of this fiction, he produced, within the two years of his apprenticeship, a mass of pseudo-antique dramatic, lyric, and descriptive poems, and fragments of local and general history connected all with his romance of the clerk of Bristol. A scholarly knowledge of Middle English was rare one hundred and thirty years ago, and the self-taught boy easily gulled the local antiquaries. He even deceived Horace Walpole, who, dabbling in medievalism, had opened the way for prose romances with his Castle of Otranto, a spurious antique of the same time in which Chatterton had placed his fiction. Walpole at first treated him courteously, even offering to print some of the poems. But when Gray and Mason pronounced them modern, he at once gave Chatterton the cold shoulder, entirely forgetting his own imposition on a credulous public. Chatterton now turned to periodical literature and the politics of the day, and began to contribute to various London magazines. In the spring of 1770 he finally came up to London, to start on the life of a literary adventurer, on a capital of less than five pounds. He lived abstemiously and worked incessantly, literally day and night. He had a wonderful versatility. He would write in the manner of anyone he chose to imitate, and he tried his hand at every species of bookwork. But even under the strain of this incessant productivity, he found time to turn back to his boyhood dreams, and produced one of his finest poems, The Ballad of Charity. At first his contributions were freely accepted, but he was poorly paid, and sometimes not at all. Yet out of his scanty earnings he bought costly presents for his mother and sister, as tokens of affection and in earnest of what he hoped to do for them. After scarcely two months in London, he was at the end of his resources. He made an attempt to gain a position as surgeon's assistant on board of an African trader, but was unsuccessful. He now found himself face to face with famine, and, too proud to ask for assistance, or to accept even the hospitality of a single meal, he, on the night of August twenty-fifth, 1770, locked himself into his garret, destroyed all his notebooks and papers, and swallowed a dose of arsenic. It is believed that he was privately buried in the churchyard of St. Mary Redcliffe. There a monument has been erected, with an inscription from his poem, Will. To the memory of Thomas Chatterton, Reader, judge not. If thou art a Christian, believe that he shall be judged by a superior power. To that power alone is he now answerable. His death attracted little notice, for he was regarded merely as the transcriber of the Rowley poems. They were collected after his death from the various persons to whom he had given the manuscripts, and occasioned a controversy that has lasted almost down to the present generation. 
but only an age untrained in philological research could ever have received them as genuine productions of the fifteenth century for chatterton who knew little of the old authors antedating spencer constructed with the help of bailey's and kersey's english dictionaries a lingo of his own he strung together old words of all periods and dialects and even coined words himself to suit the metre his lingo resembles anything rather than middle english it is supposed that he wrote first in modern english and then translated into his own dialect for the poems do not suffer by retranslation on the contrary they are more intelligible and often more rhythmical chatterton had a wonderful memory and having read enormously there are frequent though perhaps unconscious plagiarisms from spencer shakespeare dryden pope gray and others yet after all has been said against the spurious character of the roley poems chatterton's two volumes of collected writings produced under the most adverse circumstances are a record of youthful precocity unparalleled in literary history he wrote spirited satires at ten and some of his best old verse before sixteen isla is a dramatic poem of sustained power and originality and its songs have the true lyric ring the ode to liberty a fragment from the tragedy of godwin is with its bold imagery one of the finest martial lyrics in the language the ballad of charity almost the last poem he wrote comes in its objectivity and artistic completeness near to some of keats's best ballad work but more wonderful perhaps than this early blossoming of his genius is its absolute originality at a time when johnson was the literary dictator of london and pope's manner still paramount chatterton unmindful of their conventionalities and the current french influence instinctively turned to earlier models and sought his inspiration at the true source of english song bishop percy's relics of old english poetry published in seventeen sixty five first made the people acquainted with their fine old ballads but by that year chatterton had already planned the story of the monk of bristol and written some of the poems gifted with a rich vein of romance he heralded the coming revival of medieval literature but he not only divined the new movements of poetry he was also responsible for one side of its development he had a poet's ear for metrical effects and transmitted this gift to the romantic poets through coleridge for the latter deeply interested in the tragedy of the life of the bristol boy studied his work and traces of this study resulting in freer rhythm and new harmonies are found in coleridge's own verse the influence of the author of christabel on his brother poets is indisputable hence his indebtedness to chatterton gives to the latter at once his rightful position as the father of the new romantic school keats also shows signs of close acquaintance with chatterton and he proves, moreover, by the dedication of his endymion, that he cherished the memory of the unfortunate young poet, with whom he had, as far as the romantic temper on its objective side goes, perhaps the closest spiritual kinship of any poet of his time. But quite apart from his youthful precocity and his influence on later poets, Chatterton holds no mean place in English literature because of the intrinsic value of his performance. His work, on the one hand, aside from the Rowley poems, shows him a true poet of the eighteenth century and the best of it entitles him to a fair place among his contemporaries but on the other hand he stands almost alone in his generation in possessing the highest poetic endowments originality of thought a quick eye to see and note the gift of expression sustained power of composition and a fire and intensity of imagination in how far he would have fulfilled his early promise it is idle to surmise yet what poet in the whole range of english nay of all literature at seventeen years and nine months of age has produced work of such excellence as this marvellous boy 
who, unrecognized and driven by famine, took his own life in a London garret. Final Chorus from Godwin When freedom, dressed in blood-stained vest, to every night her war-song sung, upon her head wild weeds were spread, a gory unloss by her hung. She danced on the heath, she heard the voice of death, pale-eyed affright, his heart of silver hue in vain assailed her bosom to a kale. She heard unflame the shrieking voice of woe, and sadness in the owlet shake the dale. She shook the burled spear, on high she jest her shield, her foemen all appear and flizz along the field. Power with his hefod strot into the skies, his spear a sunbeam and his shield a star, alike twy brending gronfires rolls his eyes, chafts with his iron feet and sounds to war. She sits upon a rock, she bends before his spear, she rises from the shock, wielding her own in air. Hard as the thunder does she drive it on, Wit skilly-wimpled geese it to his crown, His long, sharp spear, his spreading shield is gone, He falls, and falling rolleth thousands down. War, gore-faced war, by envy burled a wrist, His fiery helm a-nodding to the air, Ten bloody arrows in his straining fist. The Farewell of Sir Charles Baldwin to His Wife From the Bristow Tragedy and now the bell began to toll, and clarions to sound. Sir Charles, he heard the horse's feet a-prancing on the ground. And just before the officers, his loving wife came in, weeping unfeigned tears of woe with loud and dismal din. Sweet Florence, now I pray, forbear, in quiet let me die. Pray, God, that every Christian soul may look on death as I. Sweet Florence, why these briny tears? They wash my soul away, and almost make me wish for life with thee, sweet dame, to stay. Tis but a journey I shall go unto the land of bliss. Now, as a proof of husband's love, receive this holy kiss. Then Florence, faltering in her say, trembling these words, yes spoke. Ah, cruel Edward, bloody king, my heart is well-nigh broke. Ah, sweet Sir Charles, why wilt thou go without thy loving wife? The cruel axe that cuts thy neck, it eke shall end my life. And now the officers came in to bring Sir Charles away, who turned to his loving wife, and thus to her did say, I go to life, and not to death. Trust thou in God above, and teach thy sons to fear the Lord, and in their hearts him love. Teach them to run the noble race that I their father run. Florence, should death thee take, adieu. Ye officers, lead on. Then Florence raved as any mad, and did her tresses tear. Oh, stay, my husband, lord, and life! Sir Charles then dropped a tear. Till tired out with raving loud, she fell in on the floor. Sir Charles exerted all his might, and marched from out the door. Upon a sled he mounted then, with looks full brave and sweet, looks that in shown nay more concern than any in the street. Minstrel's Song O oh, sing unto my roundelay, O oh, drop the briny tear with me, Dance no more at holiday, Like a raining river be. My love is dead, Gone to his deathbed, 
all under the willow tree. Black his crying as the winter night, white his road as the summer snow, rod his face as the morning light, kale he lies in the grave below. My love is dead, gone to his deathbed, all under the willow tree. Swalt his tongue as the throstle's note, quick in dance as thought can be, deft his tabor, cudgel stout, oh, he lies by the willow tree. My love is dead, gone to his deathbed, all under the willow tree. Hark, the raven flaps his wing in the briar dell below. Hark, the death owl loud doth sing to the nightmares as he go. My love is dead, gone to his deathbed, all under the willow tree. See, the white moon sheens on high. Whiter is my true love's shroud, whiter in the morning sky, whiter in the evening cloud. My love is dead, gone to his deathbed, all under the willow tree. Here upon my true love's grave shall the barren floors be laid, near one halley saint to save all the illness of a maid. My love is dead, gone to his deathbed, all under the willow tree. With my hands I'll dent the briars round his halley course to grey. Oof and fairy, light your fires, here my body still shall be. My love is dead, gone to his deathbed, all under the willow tree. Come with acorn cup and thorn, drain my heart as blood away. Life and all its good I scorn, dance by night or feast by day. My love is dead, gone to his deathbed, all under the willow tree. Water witches crowned with wraiths, bear me to your lethal tide. I die, I come, my true love waits. Thus the damsel spake and died. An Excellent Ballad of Charity, as written by the good priest Thomas Rowley, 1464. In Virginia the sweltry sun gan sheen, and hot upon the mees did cast his ray. The apple rotted from its pallet green, and the mole pear did bend the leafy spray. The peed chalandry sung the live-long day. T'was now the pride, the manhood of the year, and eke the ground was dight in its most deft, O oh, mere. The sun was gleaming in the mid of day, dead still the air, and eke the welkin blue, when from the sea a wrist in drear array a heap of clouds of sable, sullen hue, the which full fast unto the woodland drew, hiltering attains the sun's fetive face, and the black tempest swoln and gathered up apace. Beneath an olm, fast by a pathway-side, which did unto St. Godwin's covent lead, a hapless pilgrim moaning did abide, poor in his view, ungentle in his weed, long breathful of the miseries of need. Where from the hailstone could the almer fly? He had no house in there, nay any covent nigh. Look in his gloomed face, his sprite there scan, how woe-begone, how withered, for wind, dead, Haste to thy church glebe-house, a shrewd man, haste to thy kiss, thy only daughter bed. Kale as the clay which will gree on thy head is charity and love among high elves. Knights and barons live for pleasure and themselves. The gathered storm is ripe, the big drops fall, the four-swat meadows smeathe and drench the rain. The coming ghastness do the cattle pall, and the full flocks are driving o'er the plain.
dashed from the clouds, the waters float again. The welkin opes, the yellow levin flies, and the hot fiery smoke and the wide lowings dies. List, now the thunder's rattling, climbing sound cheves slowly on, and then embolen clangs, shakes the high spire, and lost, despended, drowned, still on the gallard ear of terror hangs. The winds are up, the lofty elman swangs. Again the levin and the thunder pours, and the full clouds are brass atines in stone as showers. Spurring his palfrey o'er the watery plain, the abbot of St. Godwin's convent came. His chapernet was drented with the rain, and his pent girdle met with mickle shame. He ironward told his bead-roll at the same. The storm increasin, and he drew aside, with a mist almscraver near to the home to bide. His cope was all of Lincoln cloth so fine, with a gold button fastened near his chin. His meat was edged with golden twine, and his shoon pike a lovers might have been. Full well it shone he thought and cost no sin. The trammels of the palfrey pleased his sight, for the horse-milliner his head with roses dight. "'An alms, Sir Priest,' the dropping pilgrim said. "'Oh, let me wait within your covent door, till the sun sheeneth high above our head, and the loud tempest of the air is o'er. Helpless and old am I, alas, and poor. No house, no friend, no money in my pouch. All yet I call my own. Is this my silver crouch?' "'Varlet,' replied the abbot, "'cease your din. "'This is no season alms and prayers to give. "'My porter never lets a fater in. "'None touch my ring who not in honour live.' "'And now the sun with the black clouds did strive, "'and shedding on the ground his glary ray, "'the abbot spurred his steed, and eftsoons rode away. "'Once mo' the sky was black, the thunder rolled, "'fast raining o'er the plain a priest was seen.' Nadite full proud, na buttoned up in gold, his cope and jape were grey, and eke were clean. A limiter he was of order seen, and from the pathway side then turned he, where the poor almer lay beneath the almond tree. An alms, Sir Priest, the dropping pilgrim said, for sweet Saint Mary and your order's sake. The limiter then loosened his pouch thread, and did thereout a groat of silver take. The Mr. Pilgrim did for Halline shake. Here, take this silver, it may ease thy care. We are God's stewards all, need of our own we bear. But ah, unhaly pilgrim, learn of me, scathe any give a rent-roll to their lord. Here, take my seam-coat, thou art bare, I see. Tis thine, the saints will give me my reward. He left the pilgrim, and his way aboard. Virgin and holy saint who sit in glower, or give the mitty will, or give the good man power. THE RESIGNATION O God, whose thunder shakes the sky, Whose eye this atom-globe surveys, To thee, my only rock, I fly, Thy mercy in thy justice praise. The mystic mazes of thy will, The shadows of celestial night, Are past the power of human skill, But what the eternal acts is right. O teach me in the trying hour When anguish swells the dewy tear, To still my sorrows, own thy power, Thy goodness love, thy justice fear. If in this bosom aught but thee encroaching sought a boundless sway, omniscience could the danger see, and mercy look the cause away. Then why, my soul, dost thou complain? Why drooping seek the dark recess? Shake off the melancholy chain. 
for God created all to bless. But ah, my breast is human still, the rising sigh, the falling tear, my languid vitals feeble rill, the sickness of my soul declare. But yet, with fortitude resigned, I'll thank the inflictor of the blow, forbid the sigh, compose my mind, nor let the gush of misery flow. The gloomy mantle of the night which on my sinking spirit steals will vanish at the morning light which God, my east, my sun, reveals. End of section 5 Recording by Amy Koenig